0: Please take out a dollar bill if you have one handy. Those of you at home as well, and the reason I do this is because every time that you deal with a dollar bill, I want you to remember the point of this lesson that's going to come later on. I want you to take out a dollar bill, and I want you to look at that dollar bill. Probably not going to this sermon quite where you think I am. When you look at that dollar bill, what do you see? Well. You might see the face of George Washington staring back at you, amongst other things. But you know, if you hold this up to the person sitting beside of you, like this, we're gonna see something totally different, aren't we? I'm gonna see George Washington on my side, but the person beside of me is gonna see an eagle, a pyramid, different color, we're looking at the same, this is so important. We're looking at the same thing, but if we look at it from two different viewpoints, we're going to see something totally different, even though it's the same thing. Now, you can put it away, Now consider that this is a $10 bill. Even in our view of a $10 bill, if we're still looking at it from the same side, we probably would see something different to some of these, athletes that have recently signed $360 million plus, or even $500 million plus, from what I understand, contracts, $10 bill probably doesn't mean much. But if you take somebody who works all week for 10 bucks in a third world country, or the equivalent thereof, that $10 bill they would see as a week's wages, maybe as a bar of gold, whereas somebody with millions of dollars one, see it as worth much of anything, hardly the paper it's written on. Keep that in mind as we progress with the lesson. As New Testament Christians, we know that our Almighty God sees things differently than we do. He sees things totally different from and often completely opposite of the way we view them. Isaiah chapter 55. Verses 8 and 9 tell us this. We know from scripture that we as human beings tend to look at the physical or the outward, while God looks at the spiritual or inward. First Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7 tells us that. Because of us, because of God seeing things totally different than we do at times, We see again in scripture where it says in luke chapter 16 verse 15 that what is highly valued or esteemed in our eyes is an abomination to god god sees as an abomination some of those things that we very highly value or we see value in now having said that that's why it's important that we as christians come to understand that we must take the time, put in the effort to learn and to train our minds as children of God to think in terms of or to view things the way God does. It It is vital for us as God's children to learn to view things, to look at them and to see what God sees in those things, to look at them from God's perspective. Do you know how many times this is seen throughout the scriptures? this is all over the scriptures for example this is what Jesus was trying to do in Matthew I'm not gonna turn there but you know the story this is what Jesus was trying to do in Matthew chapter 11 verses 1 through 14 you will recall that that's where the two disciples of John the Baptist go to Jesus and they say are you the one or should we look for somebody else and so after Jesus does does miracles and they go back to John the Baptist these two disciples of John's What does Jesus do? He turns around, says to his disciples, to the gathered crowd, he said, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? What what did you go out to see? A a reed shaken by the wind? A a prophet? Then what did he say? He said, no. He said, what you saw was much more than a prophet. He wanted them to see John the Baptist through God's eyes. And he said. There was so much more there and you missed it. He is the Elijah that was to come. In all those who have been born, there's not been one born greater than John the Baptist. They went out to see this, this guy clothed in, in you know, camel's hair and eating locusts and just this, this kind of spectacle, this, this guy. And Jesus said, no, no, you have gotta see him from God's perspective, there's so much more there. We see this again in John chapter 13. The night that Jesus got down and washed his disciples' feet, Peter said, No, you'll never wash my feet. Pa- Peter thought it was about washing feet. He was looking at it from a human, earthly perspective. And Jesus said, Peter, said to the other apostles, actually, he said, What I'm doing, you, you don't understand that. You're looking at this from God's perspective. You're looking at it like I'm washing feet. But but there's so much more here that I want you to understand. And what did he say to him later? Love one another even as I have loved you. He was setting an example. There was so much more than just getting the dirt out from between their toes. But they didn't see it that way in the beginning. You see how throughout the scripture, God tries to get us to view things from his perspective. Turn to me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 4. Again and again and again and again and again and again and again. I wish I we'd be here till after evening services tonight in some places probably if we went through all of these. But We need to understand how vital this is before we get to our main point. 2 Corinthians 4, this is what Paul was trying to get his Corinthian brethren to do. To look at things the way God did, to look at God's things, not the physical, but the spiritual. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart. He's gone through how they're going through all these trials and tribulations. He said, therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing. Yeah, we see that, we feel it, we, we know the struggles we're having, verses seven through 15. He says, well, we know these struggles. Even though our outward man is perishing, the inward man's being renewed day by day. For our, and I always love when Paul, I, I get to this point and I, I just have to stop and giggle inside. If anybody knew anything about suffering and affliction, it was Paul, right? Second Corinthians 11, talks about the stonings, the scourgings, the shipwrecks, all he's been through, right? What does he call it here? For our light. Affliction you know those little little tiny things we go through like you know shipwrecks and scourging and being stoned almost to death You know those little light easygoing things Our light affliction which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory While we do not look at the things which are seen But at the things which are not seen for the things which are seen are temporary the things which are not seen they're eternal What's the point of the text? Stop looking at it through the eyes of men. Stop looking at the physical. Start looking at the eternal, the spiritual. Look at it from God's viewpoint. These are only light afflictions. We're only here momentarily. Your life is a vapor. There is so much more, such far exceeding beauty and glory that is waiting for us. Don't focus on these momentary things. God wants you to keep your eyes on the prize. Over and over and over and over again. If we were to go to 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7 or James 1, 2, and 3. We'd see that both Peter and James are trying to get people to understand their trials are not because God's punishing them. Their trials are a means by which, a necessary element by which their faith is being purified, strengthened, so that they can persevere and make it to heaven. That's the point of trials. That's what James says in James 1 through four. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. He said, that's the whole point. You're in a situation you can't handle. You rely on God more. You see God work, and what does that do? It strengthens your faith. Peter, in that passage, in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, talks about your faith being refined as through fire. That's the way we should look at our trials. It, it's melting out the weaknesses. And you know, one of the things that we marvel at today, I, I've heard it in Bible classes, I've seen it over and over. One of the things that we marvel at today, as we look back on the first century disciples prior to the day of Pentecost, is their total lack of understanding regarding Christ's kingdom. Remember they had in mind an earthly kingdom throughout the scriptures, they had in mind this earthly kingdom. We look back and say, how, you know, how could they be so thick headed? Why didn't they understand this? Despite Jesus' repeated teaching indicating that it would be a spiritual kingdom, one in which the greatest would be those who served, Matthew 20, 20 through 28, a kingdom which would not, like the earthly physical kingdoms, come with observation or by observing them coming with the human eye, Luke 17, 20 and 21, while he taught them that this spiritual kingdom would be one which would not be of or from or like all the the physical kingdoms around them, John 18:36. What did they do? Despite his continued teaching about that, what did they do? Man, they held right on in a death grip to their idea. This is going to be a physical kingdom, you know. And Jesus is trying try to get no, no, no. Don't think in those terms. That's not what the kingdom's about. The king. Well, it's going to be a physical kingdom. What did they ask him in Acts 1:6. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are, are you gonna, you gonna come sweeping in and do away with the Romans? Three and a half years, and they still didn't get God's perspective on the kingdom. And while we perhaps sit back and marvel at their human as opposed to biblical perspective, while we sit back maybe and, and we marvel at their physical and earthly as opposed to biblical and heavenly view, Of the kingdom I have to wonder if there isn't perhaps one topic that we sitting here today we as the church period throughout the world even today as New Testament Christians very similarly buy into the world's dismal human Physical short-sighted view of a lot more than we should I think there's a topic that we tend to we get swept up in the world's idea the physical idea the human idea of what it's all about and, and we kind of also get our eyes off of looking at it the way God does I Think there's one topic which we tend to look at a whole lot differently than the far far more beautiful beautiful biblical picture of which Jesus Christ himself died to give us now we may not do it when we stop and think about it but if we don't stop and think about it I think we again we we focus on the world's human physical idea of this topic so what I'm gonna ask you to do right now is when I mention what it is try to clear your minds of any human physical perception, viewpoint of this topic, okay? And open up wholly to the scriptures that we are going to talk about this morning. When it comes to the topic of our own death. Our own death, don't don't shut me off here. Think about this, our own death. It's not gonna be a negative sermon, it's gonna be a Positive sermon. See, the world's perspective of death, those who do not know God, those who do not know Christ, those who do not know his word, their perspective of death that we often kind of get a hold of and and let define us as well and we shouldn't is that it is this awful, terrible, horrible, hopeless, inevitable thing that nothing worse could ever happen than your death. That it's the end that it's over but brethren i'm here to tell you this morning that is certainly not the perspective of death for those in christ that god's word gives us revelation chapter 14 and verse 13. that is surely that this is this is this horrible terrible awful thing is absolutely positively not the lord's line of sight on it for those who are his Nothing even close to that. And yet, how often do we find a Christian buying into the world's viewpoint of it? You ever heard a Christian say, for example, something like this? Well, you know, I'm doing all right today. Any day above ground's a good one. I am dying for the, not wrong terminology. <laughs> What I would love to hear someday, when somebody from the world says that, well, any day above ground's a good one. Check the obituaries this morning. I wasn't in them, so it's a good day. Y'all, how many of you have heard that, right? You know what I want to hear a Christian say? I want to hear a Christian come right back with this. But the eternal day in the heavens is gonna be far, far better. Suppose that would open some eyes? Man, that eternal day in the heavens is gonna be so much better. When somebody says, any day above ground to go to, yeah, but there's a better one for those in Christ. Cuz that's Christ's perspective. That's his viewpoint. Today I want to take a look at some of the incredibly positive, beautiful, practical and peace peace providing texts and Terminology used in the scriptures in cases where there is an impending death of God's faithful because that is What it ought to shape our understanding? That's what ought to shape our viewpoint our perspective our attitude on our own and the first thing the the first thing This is the foundation. This is the foundation text. We're going to come back to it at the end the foundation the absolute first thing How many times can I say absolute? The absolute first thing, which is absolutely critical to our understanding of our own passage from this earthly life, is the absolute truth that Jesus' absolute mission in coming to earth was to absolutely destroy the fear and the power of death. Why did Jesus come to earth? Well, he came to die on a cross. True, but there's a bigger picture. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came to destroy the power and the fear of death. Scripture tells us that. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 2. That isn't just something I came up with this week. You see, as you're turning to Hebrews 2, and we'll get there in a minute, this is sort of like what David did. Remember when David defeated Goliath in 1 Samuel 17? I want you to think about this. You can turn to Hebrews 2, and then turn your attention back to me. Do you remember when David defeated Goliath in 1 Samuel 17? Remember that story? In verses four through 10 of 1 Samuel 17, Goliath is out there, and he's this giant, and he's thrown out this big challenge. And it says in verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. When when the Israelites saw this giant that they couldn't beat and they heard his challenge in verses four through 10, in verse 11, they were greatly afraid. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. But you know what? After David defeated Goliath, do you know I never see those words again that Israel was dismayed and greatly feared Goliath? They didn't have to, did they? Why? Because Goliath was no more a threat. Goliath as a threat was done. He was finished. It was over. Would you continue to be afraid of Goliath after he's had his head severed? No, he's got no power. He's got no strength. He can't hurt you. This is exactly what Jesus Christ came to do to death. Hebrews 2, verse 9. Hebrews chapter two, watch closely. Hebrews two and verse nine. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. Why did the word become flesh? Why was Jesus made a little lower than the angels? Why did he come in human form? For the suffering of death. That's why he came so that he could suffer death We see him crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Now look with me over in verses 14 and 15. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. He shared in flesh and blood. He was the word became flesh. But what was the purpose? That through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. That's why he came. See, see, everybody had always feared death, and, and Jesus wanted for those who would become his not to fear it anymore. So he came to break that fear. He came to break that stranglehold that death held over all people. He came to annihilate it and release those people who had been afraid of it all their lives. That was his mission. That was his purpose. That's why he came. Do you see that? Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus succeed in his mission? Does the script, did the succeed? Did he succeed? Well, if he succeeded, then we shouldn't fear. I think this is a point we often miss when we talk in John chapter 14. Please back up to John 14. I, I, I need to correct myself. I said a minute ago there was a, a verse I was going to that I'd come back to at the end. It's this one in John 14. And we'll come back to it at the end. I i am excited about this lesson and the good things I want to say, I just messed up which way I was going, so it's all right. John 14, I think this is a point that we often miss, that Jesus came to break the stranglehold that death had on us. Notice, it is not by coincidence that this chapter begins in verse one with these words. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it weren't so I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place for you I'll come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also what I want for us to understand as we get into this chapter it is these words in verses 1 2 and 3 of John 14 that set the stage for the rest of the chapter this chapter John 14 is a chapter which chronicles the teaching of Jesus, meant to bring great peace and comfort to his disciples for the rest of their lives, just hours before he himself was crucified and put to death. Now, you got to remember the circumstances of that night it's just hours before he's arrested scourged beaten crucified and dies hours and yet in chapter 14 here's something interesting in light of that fact it's only going to be a few hours from now the words death die or dying are never once seen in John 14 It's it's critical to understand that. The very night before it's gonna happen, when he's trying to bring them peace and comfort, it's not that he doesn't talk about his leaving, but he doesn't put it in those terms. You don't see the word death, die, or dying in chapter 14. In fact, you don't see the words death, die, or dying in chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, or 17 of John that chronicle that night. You know what you do see? Instead, he uses terms like John 14:12, I go to the Father. Do you see the perspective change? How much would it change our perspective if we viewed our own coming death in terms of instead of, I'm dying, I'm going to the Father. I'm going to the Father. Would that put a different perspective maybe on what's about to occur if we really use that type of terminology? How much better off would we be if we thought of it in terms of simply going to the Father? How much more heavenly would our viewpoint be? Remember that dollar bill? How much more heavenly would our viewpoint be and our perspective be if we viewed it like Jesus viewed it when he said, I'm going to the Father? Not only did he say, I'm going to the Father, but I think we miss something absolutely amazing and powerful regarding our going to the Father when we just read over verse 19. Look at verse 19, simple little verse, but it's everything. Jesus said, a little while longer and the world will see me no more. What's gonna happen? He's gonna be crucified, he's gonna be put in tomb. He's gonna die, Yep. But you will see me. What is, he's going to die. What does he mean you will see me? He means I'm going to die, and the world isn't going to see me, but you will. I'm going to beat death. I am going to take the teeth out of death. I am going to go through it and prove to you that if you are mine, you don't have to fear it ever. And look what he says, because I live, you will live also. I've got that highlighted in my Bible. Because what Jesus is saying is, look, because I live in that day, after they do what they're going to do to me, after I'm putting that to them, because I live, when you see me, and I get right face to face to you, because I live, you will live. You, past your death, will live too. Because of what I'm about to do, and prove to you that I've got this beat, you're going to have eternal life. And you don't have to fear it. I will take you through it. Don't miss verse 19. And look at what he concludes with in verses 27 and 8 of this chapter. Peace I leave with you. What peace? What peace would be yours if the Lord Jesus Christ literally, after you saw him die, came back and had a conversation with you? I mean, like he did them in that day when that was possible. Would that give you some peace about death? That's what he's talking about. He said, peace. I leave with you my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you, do I give to you, here they come, Let not your heart be troubled. Where have I heard that before? That's how he opened the chapter up, remember? Chapter 14, verse one, what's the first few words? Let not your heart be troubled. He's still talking about the same thing. He hasn't changed, he's showing them. I'm taking you right back to the beginning, just what I was talking about. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Don't be afraid, don't fear, because I live you, you're going to live, too, past yours. I, I'm going to prove to you that this is nothing to fear. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I'm going away, coming back to you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said, I'm going to die. No! I'm going to the Father, he uses the phrase again. That's the way Jesus saw it. Jesus saw his upcoming crucifixion as a trip home. I'm going to the Father. You want to be with God? How many of you want to be with God? I'll put both here. You know, it's like the old saying everybody wants to go to heaven nobody wants to die well guess what we can't go to heaven in these physical bodies it's a spiritual realm somehow like taking a hand out of a glove we've got to shed this as paul says in 1 corinthians 15 we've got to shed this mortal human body and our spirits need to go back to god from whence they came ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7. and, and, and jesus viewed it that way he said i'm going to the father wow And and Jesus wasn't the only one who understood it this way. Not not after his resurrection. Jesus was not the only one who understood how his totally defeating the power of death should obviously give us a different perspective. Show us it's nothing to fear. The Apostle Paul did turn to me to Philippians 1. Philippians 1. The happiest, most joyous epistle of all of Paul's epistles. We know that, Philippians. Joy, 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 rejoicing, rejoicing, rejoice, joy. It's all over the place. And he writes it from house arrest. He says twice in chapter one, he's in chains. He makes that clear. This would be the two years that he preached, according to Acts chapter 28, the last few verses. He's under what we would call house arrest, his own rented place, but still in chains. But look what he says in verse 19. I know it's familiar but look at this. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Either one don't matter. He said, you know, I'm going to, magnification means make bigger, as we all know, right? He said, I'm going to make God bigger in the eyes of the world, make Christ bigger in the eyes of the world, whether I live or die. And he's going to go on to tell us, well, if I live, I'm going to keep preaching Jesus. But if I leave this world to go be with the Father, I'm going to count that all joy. I'm going to make God bigger and magnify him in that way, too. Read on with me here. Follow along. For to me... To live is Christ, that's a wonderful thing. But to die is gain, that's even better. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor, yet yet I can't choose. What I shall choose, I I, I can't tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. I think Paul was glad it wasn't up to him which way it went, aren't you? Having a desire. To depart and be with Christ, which is far better. He says, I've got this desire. Have you ever just, you just, you see this thing, whether it's, you know, young people starting out and they see this house they want or whatever, it's just something you're just, you're just living for, you desire and you want this and you're working for it and, you, and you're persistent with it. Paul says, My desire, what I want more than anything is to depart and be with Christ. That is so much better. But, he says, Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. I've still got work to do, I know. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with all, with you all, for your progress and joy of faith. Now, yes, we see the words death and die in that text, don't we? We sure do. But don't miss how they're described. He says, to die is gain. And he describes his death not as dying or a sad thing, but as his departure to be with Christ, saying that's his desire because it's far, far better. That's how Paul saw it. That's what Jesus died to accomplish in our hearts and minds is for us to understand that. It's a departure to be with Christ, which is far better. Now, now, don't get me wrong, just don't get me wrong. Paul was not saying, everybody tune in real loud and clear, Paul was not saying for one moment that he was gonna put himself in a position where he would arbitrarily speed up his own departure ahead of the Lord's timetable or anything like that. Paul wasn't doing that, okay? Don't misunderstand. He understood that there were still people who needed him, didn't he, isn't that what we read? For me to remain is better for you. He understood there was still work that God had for him to do. He understood there was still people that needed him. He, he got that. But at the same time, he never allowed that to to pull his eyes off of what was waiting when he departed after getting that work done that the Lord wanted for him to do. Once he became a Christian, he never allowed his departure from this earth to become something he feared, but something he faithfully, joyfully desired and looked forward to with great desire and longing. You know why? Because Paul said, I know whom I have believed. Remember that? We sing it, right? It's also scripture. I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day, 2 Timothy 1:12. Persuaded in that text is from a Greek word that means to trust, to have confidence or to be confident. Paul was fully confident that what God had promised, he was able to deliver, right? Fully, fully, absolutely convinced. Jesus had said, because I live, you'll live too. Paul was confident of that. (laughs) You know, as I read some of these, it's almost like Paul, I gotta say this, it's almost like Paul saying to the Romans, Yeah, you can't threaten me with heaven. He wanted them to know. He was confident in Christ and what Christ had done to death. Look with me in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. Chapter 5. We want to talk about knowing something. I I love this text. 2 Corinthians 5. Look what Paul writes. 2 Corinthians five one, for we know, there's no doubt in his mind, that if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, that is our body, we have, not we're going to have, not we hope to have, but we have, it's, it's a done deal. A building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, did you notice the contrast? this earthly house this body that my spirit is in this tent can be destroyed but we have a building from God that is eternal in the heavens that one can't be that one's eternal for in this body we groan you have days you get up and just groan like, and <laughs> say really I gotta do this we struggle we groan he said in this we groan but it's also on a spiritual level he says earnestly desiring there's our word again to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven, it's still that desire. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked, for we who are in this tent groan, being burdened. You ever burdened? Not because we want to be unclothed. Not because we simply want to die as a means of escape. No, 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 no. No, not because we just want to die as an escape. We want not to be unclothed, but further clothed. We want to go in a positive direction. We want to take it up a level. To live as Christ, to die is gain. Further clothed, more completely clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who had prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the spirit as a guarantee. So we're always confident. Brethren, that's that no fear of death. We're always confident. Do you trust Jesus Christ or not? He beat death. And so we're always confident, knowing that while we're at home in the body, that's here, we're absent from the Lord, he's there. We know he's with us, but we'll be with him in a more complete way up there. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. You get that? We'd rather be with him. Same thing he said in Philippians. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him. Hey, you wanna be with Jesus up there? You want his promise certain? and live for him here. To live is Christ. To die is gain. And he goes on from there. Perhaps nowhere is this message from the Apostle Paul more apparent than in some of his last written words in 2 Timothy 4. I'm going to ask you to turn there. 2 Timothy 4. Before we actually read it, I wanna give you a little bit of history. It is believed that the Apostle Paul, from everything that I have read from people that are a lot smarter than I am, it is a commonly held belief of historians and commentators alike that Paul was released from his first Roman imprisonment from which he wrote Philippians and other things, other epistles. And he did some more preaching, but it wasn't too long after that that the emperor Nero started a fire, burned down lot of Rome and blamed the Christians for it and Paul was rearrested or arrested again. Second imprisonment. And this time it wasn't house arrest. This time it wasn't in a place anywhere near like he was the first time. According to church tradition, the apostle Paul second imprisonment took place at a place called Mamertine Prison in the ancient city of Rome. You can view it today, you go online, look it up. It's M-A-M-E-R-T-I-N-E, Mamertine, Mamertine, however it's pronounced. And there's an inscription that you'll see if you look at pictures up over the door. And it tells you that this was the place that the apostles Peter and Paul were imprisoned. Now, this is church tradition, the Bible doesn't tell us where he was imprisoned. But it is believed by historians that that is indeed the place and even the plaque says that for what that's worth. A couple of websites I checked out on the prison described it thus. The Mamertine prison could have been called the House of Darkness. Few prisons were as dim, dank, and dirty as the lower chamber, it was basically this big hole in the ground with two chambers in in a lower dungeon, both dungeons. Known in earlier times, as the Tulanium dungeon, its neglect, darkness, and stench gave it a hideous and terrifying appearance, according to one Roman historian. You have to remember, have to remember, that prisoners in ancient times were not put in prison as punishment, okay? They were put in prison for one of two reasons. Number one, to await trial, or number two, to await execution. It wasn't like you got 10 years for some crime. If you were in prison, you were either waiting trial or you were waiting execution. That's it. It wasn't, again, something meant as long-term punishment. If you were there, it probably wasn't gonna turn out well. One of the websites went on, the purpose of these holding cells was only to keep the prisoner for a short amount of time. No matter how short the sentence, those unlucky enough to end up there were met by the most horrific environment. Conditions in these dungeons were closer to a sewage tank than a prison cell. Mamertine prison was no exception. People were simply thrown into cells and forgotten about while awaiting their execution. Sometimes people died of starvation long before their sentences were thrown in. That was very near a week. Oh well, if they died, it would save the headsman or whoever was killing them. During Paul's second imprisonment in the Mamertine prison, he had apparently received a preliminary hearing and was awaiting a final trial, 2 Timothy four sixteen. He didn't expect acquittal. He expected to be found guilty and executed. What would you do in a time like that? What would you write if you were, your death was imminent, especially simply for being a Christian? Would you think, well, this isn't fair? Probably go way beyond that. And I want to take a look at a passage, that passage he just mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and see the mindset of this faithful Christian who understood how Jesus had beaten death and done away with it forever. Second Timothy chapter four. Start with me in verse 16. In my first offense no one stood with me, but all forsook me, may it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and all the Gentiles might hear. Also I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. He wasn't sentenced to go to the lion's mouth at that first hearing. But notice what he says now. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. Now, get this. He wasn't saying, I'm never going to the lion's mouth and I'm never going to die physically. I wonder what he's saying. But he says, the Lord will preserve me. What did he call his departure to be with God? His preservation. He knew his death was imminent. As a matter of fact, if you back up here and you look in chapter four and verse six, same chapter, he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. Paul knew what was coming, but yet in verse 18, he calls it preservation to the heavenly kingdom. Yeah, he understood. As I just read in chapter 4, verse 6, Brother Shepherd, in his gospel advocate commentary, comments on verse 6 of chapter 4, thus. He said in his first Roman imprisonment, Paul thought a martyr's death was probable. As he writes now, he says, I'm already being offered, which points to the drink offering of wine, which among the Jews accompanied the sacrifice. Paul knew. So what did he do? He would not allow timothy or the many christians who loved him to be dismayed by his sufferings or tragic death he would show them by his calm triumphant courage that to him death was no terror but only the appointed passage out of the body and into the presence of the lord just as he wrote in second corinthians so he speaks of his life blood being shed under the well-known peaceful image of the wine poured out over the sacrifice the drink offering the sweet savor to the lord numbers chapter 15 verses 1 through 10 puts it out there as a peaceful thing, something pleasing to the Lord, because he was about to go to the Father. He was about to gain. He was about to be preserved to the heavenly kingdom. What's even more interesting to me from verse 6, where he says, the time of my departure is at hand. That's even more interesting and significant for the sake of this sermon. That word departure, what do you think of when you think of the word departure? Departure, that's what he calls it. He doesn't say the time of my death, the time of my you know, beheading, the time of, he says the time of my departure. See, he's got the, the biblical view of it and not the world's view of it. My departure, it's not the end, it's not over, it's not terrible, it's not awful. He said the time of my departure is at hand. The word there that is used in the Greek is a word used only once in the entire Bible. Here's what it means. It means a ship slipping its moorings and preparing to set sail. We might think of an airport. Departure board, right? We're getting ready to take off, to go somewhere. This word departure means, is used primarily of a ship slipping its moorings and setting sail. Now here's the interesting thing about that. How many times is Paul shipwrecked? Well, we know that he tells us that three times he was shipwrecked in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. Now, we know that was written prior to the shipwreck in Acts 27, so we know that Paul was shipwrecked at least four times. Do we have a record of four times? <laughs> maybe, no, I don't believe in luck. I was gonna say maybe he's just bad luck, but no, there's no, I don't believe in luck. I don't see that in the Bible, but anyway. It's interesting to me. There's many disasters as he's met in a ship. Paul's not afraid. He's looking at this as a joyful thing. You know why? Because Jesus Christ was the author and the captain of this ship. Jesus Christ was going to carry him safely. He knew what Jesus had done. He knew this was a journey. And he knew that his captain would not fail. It's like going to the airport and having, going on vacation, all your expenses have been paid, maybe the Caribbean, Hawaii, wherever. All your, your hotel, everything's been paid for. And, and you watch, you get, to the, you get to, the, to the airport, your bags are all packed, you've been preparing for this for months, you've got everything you need, you're ready to go, and you look up there on that departure board and slowly, 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 your departure comes to the top. And so you come to the gate, you have your boarding pass checked and you start down that hallway toward the plane. Paul said, time of my departure's here. I'm ready to go, I'm prepared, My ticket's been paid for in blood and I am ready to go. Not because he had hurried the schedule, he had lived as God wanted him to live and God had taken care of the schedule. So as we get ready here in a couple of minutes to take communion, despite how those who do not know God view death, how should the child of the living God who understands what Jesus did, who understands what the Word of God says, and who accepts that as the truth, how should they view death? Well, as something the Lord Jesus Christ came, defeated, annihilated, and completely delivered us from ever having to live in fear of again. Hebrews 2 9 and 14 through 15. How should a faithful Christian view death as going to my Father? John 14 12 and 28. As gain something to be desired because of the fact that it is far far better Philippians 1:21 through 23 as going to our eternal home in heaven which God has built for us which we have earnestly desired second Corinthians 5 1 and following and finally how should we view it as we just review the whole sermon as our deliverance our departure our reward and our preservation 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 18. And every bit of that, every last iota of what I've just said was proven and provided beyond any shadow of a doubt because of the Lord Jesus Christ's death, burial, resurrection, his absolute and overwhelming victory over death's power, just like he promised in John 14 when he said to his disciples in verse 19, a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, here they come, seven words, because I live, you will live also. Isn't that an awesome promise? I beat it, he says, and because I live, you can know. That you will live beyond your death too with me. That's what we celebrate. Just a few minutes we're going to moments we're going to celebrate that. His resurrection, death, burial, and resurrection, which should forever change our view of death. Should help take care of our fear of it forever. Before we do that, we're going to sing a song that has been very specifically selected. Very specifically selected to help us focus and get our minds wrapped around the contents of this lesson, and especially with its last verse, as we think about our own departure and deliverance into the presence of the Father, as verse 4 begins, no guilt in life no fear in death this is the power of Christ in me
1: in Christ alone this time, please locate your communion. Please re- peel back the clear wrapper to reveal the Unleavened Bread. As we consider Doug's lesson this morning, along with the, the slide, uh, while the cross is there in the foreground, the glory of heaven, perhaps. Is beyond and let us look this morning past this memorial to what waits beyond us for us if we're faithful to Christ let's pray together dearly Father we're indeed thankful for so many things so many blessings this morning as we pause and we think back to that sacrifice of your son and as Doug has brought it to our attention that looking through this service this memorial service on to the hope of heaven we want to partake of this emblem thinking of his death, burial, and resurrection but at the same time firmly affixing our eyes on the goal of heaven. Be with us as we partake of this and help us do so in a manner pleasing in your sight. In Christ's name, amen. haven't already, please reveal the fruit of the vine into the foil wrapper. Let's continue our memorial in prayer. Dearly Father, we stop at this time to reflect upon the blood that was shed from your son's amazing sacrifice on that cross, from his head to his back his hands to his side, to his feet that were all pierced or beaten or otherwise mangled. His blood flowed freely as the atonement for our sins, that we might be washed water and snow. Be with us as we take this emblem in Christ's name, amen. That concludes the Lord's Supper. I encourage everyone to remember that uh, offering will be uh, collected as we depart from the uh, from the building. So
0: In a posting on the Polishing the Pulpit Facebook page, dated for last Sunday morning, August the 16th at 1054 AM, it said this. It was announced this morning by the elders of the Carnes Church in Knoxville that their preacher, Steve Higginbotham, has stage four cancer. Many of you may know the name Steve Higginbotham. I have read stuff of his for years. He has been at Affirming the Faith, Polishing the Pulpit. If you get on to Polishing the Pulpit, um, you will find some of his stuff there. Uh, Faithful Preacher of the Gospel. And as I said, it was announced last Sunday morning that he has stage four cancer. His post a day or two later said this, his post. Well, the latest news is that we saw an oncologist today. I have test schedules and will begin immunotherapy once they are completed. With all the prayers being offered upon our behalf, we are hopeful. However, having said that, don't misunderstand. Our hope is not rooted in a positive outcome but in the faithfulness of God. Did you catch that? Our hope is not rooted in a positive outcome, but in the faithfulness of God. Here's a man who is saying that his faith is not going to be determined or impacted whether the outcome is positive or negative as he faces something that could be The way he leaves this earth, but his hope, he says, but our hope is rooted in the faithfulness of God. Do you know what that means? That means I know whom I have believed. I know what Jesus came to do. I know there's a home waiting for me because of the blood of Jesus Christ. For me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Do you have that kind of hope this morning? If you knew you had 24 hours left to live, would you have that kind of hope? Do you have that kind of faith? Or do you still live in fear of that which Jesus Christ came, overcame, and annihilated? Scripture says in Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed for man to die once. In Colossians chapter three, verses three and four, Paul writes to the Colossians, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life appears, then you also shall appear with him in glory. He told those Christians they had already died. When did they die? Well, they died when they were buried with him in baptism. It's appointed for man to die once. Listen, brethren if we put that old man of sin to death, Colossians 2.12, buried with him in baptism by faith in the working of God, when we put that old man of sin to death, we rise to walk in newness of life with the Lord, whether we're here another 100 years or we're here another 100 seconds and up there for eternity, either way, we continue to live with the Lord. If you have never been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, put that old man of sin to death, to die that once, yeah sure you'll die physically later but it's simply a matter of being with the lord here and then being with the lord there it's still being alive to god in christ jesus if you've never been baptized you don't have that hope you don't you need that and if you're somebody here this morning and you've been baptized into christ but you've always just had this this fear and you need, maybe, having heard the sermon this morning, say, you know what, I need to I need to grab onto that. I need to hold that tighter. I need to clutch it more. I need that's right, I know what he says right, it's in the scripture, but I I just need more faith to hang on to that. We'll pray for you, we'll study with you, if there's any way we can be of assistance this morning. I'm gonna stand right here and wait for you to make your way down that aisle as we stand and as we sing.